0: Chapter Twelve Part One of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zachary Brewster Geis. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Twelve Part One Central Chile. Valparaiso, Excursion to the Foot of the Andes, Structure of the Land, Ascend the Bell of Quiota, Shattered Masses of Greenstone, Immense Valleys, Mines, State of Miners, Santiago, Hot Baths of Coquenes Gold Mines, Grinding Mills, Perforated Stones, Habits of the Puma, El Turco and Tapacolo, Hummingbirds. July 23rd. The Beagle anchored late at night in the Bay of Valparaiso, the chief seaport of Chile. When morning came everything appeared delightful. After Tierra del Fuego the climate felt quite delicious, the atmosphere so dry, and the heavens so clear and blue with the sun shining brightly, that all nature seemed sparkling with life. The view from the anchorage is very pretty. The town is built at the very foot of a range of hills about sixteen hundred feet high and rather steep. From its position, It consists of one long, straggling street, which runs parallel to the beach, and wherever a ravine comes down, the houses are piled up on each side of it. The rounded hills, being only partially protected by a very scanty vegetation, are worn into numberless little gullies, which expose a singularly bright red soil. From this cause, and from the low, whitewashed houses with tile roofs, the view reminded me of Santa Cruz in Tenerife. In a northwesterly direction there are some fine glimpses of the Andes, but these mountains appear much grander when viewed from the neighboring hills. The great distance at which they are situated can then more readily be perceived. The volcano of Aconcagua is particularly magnificent. This huge and irregularly conical mass has an elevation greater than that of Chimborazo, for, from measurements made by the officers in the Beagle, its height is no less than twenty-three thousand feet. The cordillera, however, viewed from this point, owe the greater part of their beauty to the atmosphere through which they are seen. When the sun was setting in the Pacific, it was admirable to watch how clearly their rugged outlines could be distinguished, yet how varied and how delicate were the shades of their color. I had the good fortune to find living here Mr. Richard Corfield, an old schoolfellow and friend, to whose hospitality and kindness I was greatly indebted in having afforded me a most pleasant residence during the Beagle's stay in Chile. The immediate neighborhood of Valparaiso is not very productive to the naturalist. During the long summer the wind blows steadily from the southward, and a little offshore, so that rain never falls. During the three winter months, however, it is sufficiently abundant. The vegetation, in consequence, is very scanty, except in some deep valleys there are no trees, and only a little grass and a few low bushes are scattered over the less steep parts of the hills. When we reflect that at the distance of three hundred fifty miles to the south, this side of the Andes is completely hidden by one impenetrable forest, the contrast is very remarkable. I took several long walks while collecting objects of natural history. The country is pleasant for exercise. There are many very beautiful flowers, and, as in most other dry climates, the plants and shrubs possessed strong and peculiar odours, even one's clothes, by brushing through them, became scented. I did not cease from wonder at finding each succeeding day as fine as the foregoing. What a difference does climate make in the enjoyment of life! How opposite are the sensations, when viewing black mountains half-enveloped in clouds, and seeing another range through the light-blue haze of a fine day? The one for a time may be very sublime, the other— all gaiety and happy life. August fourteenth. I set out on a riding excursion for the purpose of geologizing the basal parts of the Andes, which alone at this time of the year are not shut up by the winter snow. Our first day's ride was northward along the sea coast. After dark we reached the hacienda of Quintero, the estate which formerly belonged to Lord Cochrane. My object in coming here was to see the great beds of shells which stand some yards above the level of the sea and are burnt for lime. The proofs of the elevation of this whole line of coast are unequivocal. At the height of a few hundred feet old-looking shells are numerous, and I found some at thirteen hundred feet. These shells either lie loose on the surface or are embedded in a reddish-black vegetable mold. I was much surprised to find under the microscope that this vegetable mold is really marine mud full of minute particles of organic bodies. Fifteenth. We returned towards the valley of Kyoto. The country was exceedingly pleasant, just such as poets would call pastoral, green open lawns separated by small valleys with rivulets, and the cottages, we may suppose, of the shepherds scattered on the hillsides. We were obliged to cross the ridge of the Chilicoquin. At its base there were many fine evergreen forest trees, but these flourished only in the ravines where there was running water. Any person who had seen only the country near Valparaiso would never have imagined that there had been such picturesque spots in Chile. As soon as we reached the brow of the Sierra, the valley of Kyoto was immediately under our feet. The prospect was one of remarkable artificial luxuriance the valley is very broad and quite flat and is thus easily irrigated in all parts the little square gardens are crowded with orange and olive trees and every sort of vegetable on each side huge bare mountains rise and this from the contrast renders the patchwork valley the more pleasing whoever called valparaiso the valley of paradise must have been thinking of quixota we crossed over to the hacienda de san isidro situated at the very foot of the Bell Mountain. Chile, as may be seen in the maps, is a narrow strip of land between the Cordillera and the Pacific, and this strip is itself traversed by several mountain lines, which in this part run parallel to the Great Range. Between these outer lines and the main Cordillera a succession of level basins, generally opening into each other by narrow passages, extend far to the southward, in these the principal towns are situated as San Felipe, Santiago, San Fernando. These basins are plains, together with the transverse flat valleys, like that of Quijota, which connects them with the coast. I have no doubt are the bottoms of ancient inlets and deep bays, such as at the present day intersect every part of Tierra del Fuego and the western coast. Chile must formerly have resembled the latter country in the configuration of its land and water. The resemblance was occasionally shown strikingly, when a level fog-bank covered, as with a mantle, all the lower parts of the country. The white vapour curling into the ravines beautifully represented little coves and bays, and here and there a solitary hillock peeping up showed that it had formerly stood there as an islet. The contrast of these flat valleys and basins with the irregular mountains gave the scenery a character which to me was new and very interesting. From the natural slope to seaward of these plains, they are very easily irrigated, and in consequence singularly fertile. Without this process the land would produce scarcely anything, for during the whole summer the sky is cloudless. The mountains and hills are dotted over with bushes and low trees, and excepting these the vegetation is very scanty. Each landowner in the valley possesses a certain portion of hill country where his half-wild cattle in considerable numbers manage to find sufficient pasture. Once every year there is a grand rodeo, when all the cattle are driven down, counted, and marked, and a certain number separated to be fattened in the irrigated fields. Wheat is extensively cultivated, and a good deal of Indian corn. A kind of bean is, however, the staple article of food for the common laborers. The orchards produce an overflowing abundance of peaches, figs, and grapes. With all these advantages, the inhabitants of the country ought to be much more prosperous than they are. Sixteenth, The mayor domo of the hacienda was good enough to give me a guide and fresh horses, and in the morning we set out to ascend the campana, or bell mountain, which is 6400 feet high. The paths were very bad, but both the geology and the scenery amply repaid the trouble. We reached by the evening a spring called the Agua del Guanaco, which is situated at a great height. This must be an old name, for it is very many years since a guanaco drank its waters. During the ascent I noticed that nothing but bushes grew on the northern slope, whilst on the southern slope there was a bamboo about fifteen feet high. In a few places there were palms, and I was surprised to see one at an elevation of at least 4,500 feet. These palms are, for their family, ugly trees. Their stem is very large and of a curious form, being thicker in the middle than at the base or top. They are excessively numerous in some parts of Chile, and valuable on account of a sort of triacle made from the sap. On one estate near Petorca they tried to count them, but failed after having numbered several hundred thousand, Every year in the early spring, in August, very many are cut down, and when the trunk is lying on the ground, the crown of leaves is lopped off. The sap then immediately begins to flow from the upper end, and continues so doing for some months. It is, however, necessary that a thin slice should be shaved off from that end every morning so as to expose a fresh surface. A good tree will give ninety gallons, and all this must have been contained in the vessels of the apparently dry trunk. It is said that the sap flows much more quickly on those days when the sun is powerful, and likewise that it is absolutely necessary to take care in cutting down the tree, that it should fall with its head upwards on the side of the hill, for if it falls down the slope, scarcely any sap will flow, although in that case one would have thought that the action would have been aided instead of checked by the force of gravity. The sap is concentrated by boiling and is then called treacle, which it very much resembles in taste. We unsaddled our horses near the spring and prepared to pass the night. The evening was fine and the atmosphere so clear that the mass of the vessels at anchor in the bay of Valparaiso, although no less than twenty-six geographical miles distant, could be distinguished clearly as little black streaks. A ship doubling the point under sail appeared as a bright white speck. Anson expresses much surprise in his voyage at the distance at which his vessels were discovered from the coast but he did not sufficiently allow for the height of the land and the great transparency of the air. The setting of the sun was glorious, the valleys being blacked whilst the snowy peaks of the Andes yet retained a ruby tint. When it was dark we made a fire beneath a little arbor of bamboos, fried our charqui or dried slips of beef, took our mate, and were quite comfortable. There is an inexpressible charm in thus living in the open air. The evening was calm and still. The shrill noise of the mountain Biscaca and the faint cry of a goat-sucker were occasionally to be heard. Besides these, few birds, or even insects, frequent these dry, parched mountains. August seventeenth. In the morning we climbed up the rough mass of greenstone which crowns the summit. This rock, as frequently happens, was much shattered and broken into huge angular fragments I observed, however, one remarkable circumstance, namely, that many of the surfaces presented every degree of freshness, some appearing as if broken the day before, whilst on others lichens had either just become or had long grown attached. I so fully believed that this was owing to the frequent earthquakes that I felt inclined to hurry from below each loose pile. As one might very easily be deceived in a fact of this kind, I doubted its accuracy, until ascending Mount Wellington in Van Diemen's Land, where earthquakes do not occur, and there I saw the summit of the mountain similarly composed and similarly shattered, but all the blocks appeared as if they had been hurled into their present position thousands of years ago. We spent the day on the summit, and I never enjoyed one more thoroughly. Chile, bounded by the Andes and the Pacific, was seen as in a map. The pleasure from the scenery, in itself beautiful, was heightened by the many reflections which arose from the mere view of the Campania range with its lesser parallel ones and of the broad valley of Quixote directly intersecting them who can avoid wondering at the force which has upheaved these mountains and even more so at the countless ages which it must have required to have broken through removed and leveled whole masses of them it is well in this case to call to mind the vast shingle and sedimentary beds of Patagonia which if heaped on the cordillera Would increase its height by so many thousand feet. When in that country, I wondered how any mountain chain could have supplied such masses and not have been utterly obliterated. We must not now reverse the wonder and doubt whether all powerful time can grind down mountains, even the gigantic Cordillera, into gravel and mud. The appearance of the Andes was different from that which I had expected. The lower line of the snow was, of course, horizontal and to this line the even summits of the range seemed quite parallel. Only at long intervals a group of points or a single cone showed where a volcano had existed, or does now exist. Hence the range resembled a great solid wall, surmounted here and there by a tower, and making a most perfect barrier to the country. Almost every part of the hill had been drilled by attempts to open gold mines. The rage for mining has left scarcely a spot in Chile unexamined. I spent the evening as before talking round the fire with my two companions. The Guasos of Chile, who correspond to the Gauchos of the Pampas, are, however, a very different set of beings. Chile is the more civilized of the two countries, and the inhabitants, in consequence, have lost much individual character. Gradations in rank are much more strongly marked. The Guaso does not by any means consider every man his equal, and I was quite surprised to find that my companions did not like to eat at the same time with myself. This feeling of inequality is a necessary consequence of the existence of an aristocracy of wealth. It is said that some few of the greater landowners possess from five to ten thousand pounds sterling per annum, an inequality of riches which I believe is not met with in any of the cattle-breeding countries eastward of the Andes. A traveller does not here meet that unbounded hospitality which refuses all payment, but yet is so kindly offered that no scruples can be raised in accepting it. Almost every house in Chile will receive you for the night, but a trifle is expected to be given in the morning. Even a rich man will accept two or three shillings. The gaucho, although he may be a cutthroat, is a gentleman. The guaso is in few respects better, but at the same time a vulgar, ordinary fellow." The two men, although employed much in the same manner, are different in their habits and attire, and the peculiarities of each are universal in their respective countries. The gaucho seems part of his horse, and scorns to exert himself except when on his back. The guasso may be hired to work as a laborer in the fields. The former lives entirely on animal food, the latter almost wholly on vegetable. WE DO NOT HERE SEE THE WHITE BOOTS, THE BROAD DRAWERS, AND SCARLET CHILIPA, THE PICTURESQUE COSTUME OF THE PAMPAS. HERE COMMON TROUSERS ARE PROTECTED BY BLACK AND GREEN WORSTED LEGGINGS. THE PONCHO, HOWEVER, IS COMMON TO BOTH. THE CHIEF PRIDE OF THE GUASO LIES IN HIS SPURS, WHICH ARE ABSURDLY LARGE. I MEASURED ONE WHICH WAS SIX INCHES IN THE DIAMETER OF THE ROWL, AND THE ROWL ITSELF CONTAINED UPWARDS OF THIRTY POINTS. The stirrups are on the same scale, each consisting of a square carved block of wood, hollowed out, and yet weighing three or four pounds. The guasso is perhaps more expert with the lazo than the gaucho, but from the nature of the country he does not know the use of bolas. August 18th We descended the mountain and passed some beautiful little spots with rivulets and fine trees. Having slept at the same hacienda as before, we rode during the two succeeding days up the valley, and passed through Quiota, which is more like a collection of nursery gardens than a town. The orchards were beautiful, presenting one mass of peach blossoms. I saw also in one or two places the date-palm. It is a most stately tree, and I should think a group of them in their native Asiatic or African deserts must be superb. We passed likewise San Felipe, a pretty straggling town like Cuyota. The valley in this part expands into one of those great bays or plains reaching to the foot of the Cordillera, which have been mentioned as forming so curious a part of the scenery of Chile. In the evening we reached the mines of Jaduel situated in a ravine at the flank of the Great Chain. I stayed here five days. My host, the superintendent of the mine, was a shrewd but rather ignorant Cornish miner. He had married a Spanish woman and did not mean to return home but his admiration for the mines of Cornwall remained unbounded. Amongst many other questions, he asked me, Now that George Rex is dead, how many more of the family of Rexes are yet alive? This Rex certainly must be a relation of the great author Finis, who wrote all books. These mines are of copper, and the ore is all shipped to Swansea to be smelted. Hence the mines have an aspect singularly quiet as compared to those in England, Here no smoke, furnaces, or great steam-engines disturb the solitude of the surrounding mountains. The Chilean government, or rather the old Spanish law, encourages by every method the searching for mines. The discoverer may work a mine on any ground by paying five shillings, and before paying this he may try even in the garden of another man for twenty days. It is now well known that the Chilean method of mining is the cheapest. My host says that the two principal improvements introduced by foreigners have been first reducing by previous roasting the copper pyrites, which, being the common ore in Cornwall, the English miners were astounded on their arrival to find thrown away as useless, secondly stamping and washing the scoriae from the old furnaces, by which process particulates of metal are recovered in abundance. I have actually seen mules carrying to the coast for transportation to England a cargo of such cinders. But the first case is much the most curious. The Chilean miners were so convinced that copper pyrites contained not a particle of copper, that they laughed at the Englishmen for their ignorance, who laughed in turn, and bought their richest veins for a few dollars. It is very odd that in a country where mining had been extensively carried on for many years, so simple a process as gently roasting the ore to expel the sulphur previous to smelting it, had never been discovered. A few improvements have likewise been introduced in some of the simple machinery, but even to the present day water is removed from some mines by men carrying it up the shaft in leathern bags. The laboring men work very hard. They have little time allowed for their meals, and during summer and winter they begin when it is light and leave off at dark. They are paid one pound sterling a month, and their food is given them. This for breakfast consists of sixteen figs and two small loaves of bread. For dinner, boiled beans. For supper, broken roasted wheat grain. They scarcely ever taste meat, as, with the twelve pounds per annum, they have to clothe themselves and support their families. The miners who work in the mine itself have twenty-five shillings per month, and are allowed a little chakwi, But these men come down from their bleak habitations only once in every fortnight or three weeks. During my stay here I thoroughly enjoyed scrambling about these huge mountains. The geology, as might have been expected, was very interesting. The shattered and baked rocks, traversed by innumerable dikes of greenstone, showed what commotions had formerly taken place. The scenery was much the same as that near the Bell of Kyoto, dry, barren mountains, dotted at intervals by bushes with a scanty foliage. The cactuses, or rather opuntias, were here very numerous. I measured one of a spherical figure, which, including the spines, was six feet and four inches in circumference. The height of the common cylindrical branching kind is from twelve to fifteen feet, and the girth with spines of the branches between three and four feet. A heavy fall of snow on the mountains prevented me during the last two days from making some interesting excursions. I attempted to reach a lake which the inhabitants, for some unaccountable reason, believed to be an arm of the sea. During a very dry season it was proposed to attempt cutting a channel from it for the sake of the water, but the Padre, after a consultation, declared it was too dangerous, as all Chile would be inundated if, as generally supposed, the lake was connected with the Pacific. We ascended to a great height, but becoming involved in the snowdrifts, failed in reaching this wonderful lake, and had some difficulty in returning. I thought we should have lost our horses, for there was no means of guessing how deep the drifts were, and the animals, when led, could only move by jumping. The black sky showed that a fresh snowstorm was gathering, and we therefore were not a little glad when we escaped. By the time we reached the base, the storm commenced. And it was lucky for us that this did not happen three hours earlier in the day. End of chapter twelve, part one. Recording by Zachary Brewstergeis, Greenbelt, Maryland, July 2007.